This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. For weeks, we've been talking about lengthy waits and unacceptable delays at Pearson Airport. For instance, an overseas overseas flight comes into the gate two hours late. Then Customs tells them they're only allowing 10 off the plane every 10 minutes or 50 off every 30 minutes, and it basically increases the time that an aircraft uses the gate exponentially, and that in turn delays the departure of the next flight. And on it goes. Whose fault is it? Transport Minister Omar al-Ghabra has blamed passengers. He thinks they, we, are too clueless to remember how to empty our pockets at security. He's blamed labor shortages, too. Over the last few weeks, we've been really looking at examining the current resources and measures at airports. We've been working with airports and airlines, and we're constantly adding resources, but also looking at bottlenecks to address them. So when we have an announcement ready to make, you will hear it. Okay, we are waiting with bated breath to see what the government is doing to ease the situation. And it's true, there's been a huge surge in demand for travel. So how is this impacting the newly recovering travel industry? And what can you do if your plans go awry? What are your rights? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And right now, let's go to Monette Pasher, the interim president of the Toronto Airports Council, and Dr. Gabor Lukash, founder and president of Air Passenger Rights. Hello, and thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Just to clarify, I'm the president of Canada's Airport Council. Canada's Airport Council. Okay. Thanks. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, There was a mistake in my notes. Um, So, uh, Monette, um, whose fault is this? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of issues at play here at a number of different touch points within the airport. You know, airports are complex ecosystems, and I think we all have a part to play in in creating a smooth travel journey for passengers. And and quite frankly, we have a lot of work to do. Um, So there's um, a lot of work underway, as the minister alluded to, and there's a lot more work to do, certainly at our border as well. Um, There's a lot of public health mandates that are still in place that we need to move forward on as traffic rebounds. Okay, so you're saying that it is the some of the COVID mandates that the federal government imposed, and which workers are so much in shortage? Is it the federal workers at the border agents, or is it the security people? Um, where is that bottleneck because of a labor shortage? Yeah. So we're seeing a bottleneck for the labor shortage at a security screening, um, which is as you're leaving, as you're boarding a plane. So um, we were short about they've hired 400 screening officers in the last week and hoping to be back to a full staff complement by the end of the month. So certainly making some headway there and things are slowly improving in terms of the security screening bottleneck. Um, but that was due to staff shortage. Um, we're also seeing a staff shortage in various places. I mean, throughout the tourism industry, throughout the aviation industry, and certainly at our airports. And and there's a staff shortage for baggage handlers as well. And we're seeing that um, at airports throughout the country. Gabor, uh, we're hearing a lot about flights delayed, flights canceled, passengers missing their connections because of this. Uh, So what are their rights? Well, first of all, uh, we have to ask ourselves, what has happened in terms of sharing of information? Because what I'm hearing is very valuable information that the uh, security checkers, for example, are not even back to their full complement. If so, was that information of, of their 
capacity and throughput limits shared with the airline, shared with the public in a timely manner? That's a question that I'm very keen on knowing the answer to, because passengers' rights depends on whether airlines had prior knowledge that this would be a problem. If they did, then what we are seeing now are fully within the airline's control, who sold more tickets than they are able to handle. And you know, if, if the airport provided advance notice to the airlines that we can handle only so many passengers per hour, and they sold twice as many tickets, say, then it's very, somewhat very similar to overbooking situation. On the other hand, if somehow airlines were kept in dark, then it would be likely to be outside airlines control, but then it raises the question of responsibility of CASA, of CBSA, of airport authorities as well for failing to alert airlines that they don't have the necessary capacity. So the answer to passengers' rights somewhat depends on what actually happens, and that's one of the reasons that I'm so keen on finding out. Mm-hmm. And Monette Pasher, so the security employees are hired by CATSA, correct? Yes, it's a government agency. Yes. So, uh, and uh, what have you been telling the government? Yeah, so we've been um, asking the government for some time. I mean, what we've been really focusing on are the issues at our border. Um, This is where we are seeing the most extensive delays where people are being held on aircraft and and metered into the airport when there's more space. Um, And really, it's because of the legacy public health protocols that are still in place. They've been slowly changed over time, but they're still there, meaning people still have to answer health questions. There's still random testing um, screening for who will be tested um, at the airport, and there's a vaccine um, mandate in place. So we need to move forward as we've gotten back to, you know, 70% of our passenger traffic volumes this month. Um, it's becoming increasingly difficult to facilitate these public health mandates within our facilities. Uh, what makes you so sure that it is the health mandates as opposed to the labor shortages at security or in terms of border agents or airline agents for that matter? What makes you certain that that's where the biggest problem lies? Yeah, well, this is, you know, it's our business to know what's going on in terms of timelines and how long it takes to process passengers and our operations facilities managers are, are dealing with this issue every day. They know that it takes 30 seconds to normally process a customs agent um, in normal times at their desk. And now it's taking two to four times that, so upwards of two minutes, because they need to review all this health information and there's so many layers. And they also need to decide who is going to be screened in order to be randomly selected for testing. So we're talking, you know, really big numbers. At Pearson, they would see 30,000 international passengers a day arrive at the air border. At our four hub airports, it's over 50,000 a day. So it's a lot of people to move through in a short amount of time. Um, And it's very difficult to do that when we have these additional public health measures in place. You know, our airports were not built to facilitate public health measures um, for an extended period of time. It was okay, and we were able to support that when when our traffic volumes weren't as high. But now as we're getting back to um, more regular traffic at 70% now, and it's going to, our international arrivals are going to grow by 50% for the peak summer so we need to find a way to smooth out this process and remove those mandates. Gabor, do you have a view on whether it's the mandates that are responsible for this? And, and if it is, in fact, the mandates, what does that do to a, a passenger who wants compensation for a delay or a loss of a flight? I'm very skeptical about uh, the view expressed here. Um, First of all, what we haven't heard yet is whether airports have been telling airlines that we don't have the capacity to handle this many passengers. I just didn't hear an answer to that question. And that's the question that, first and foremost, airlines and airports have to answer. Was that information shared? Because it doesn't matter what is causing the, the, the bottleneck. If that bottleneck is known in advance, and if that information is passed on to airlines, then airlines have an obligation to take that into an account, and any delay caused by the airline's failure to take into an account known factors, like a, you know, a runway could be closed, or there can be another bottleneck cause. If they, if they still sell tickets as if 
the, the airport had full capacity, then that's an airline's responsibility, period and full stop. I, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical about any claim that it's trying to blame somehow these issues on unnecessary and highly warranted public health measures that Canada wisely put in place in this, in this difficult times. Um, uh, you know, we, we do have the Arrive Can app. Uh, it's rather fast. I, I've myself been through um, Toronto's airport a couple of months ago. I'm coming back, and yes, there were long lines, but it was not because of the interactions with the with the border agents. The interaction was actually way faster now with lots of apps and lots of help. It was because there weren't sufficient counters open. There weren't sufficient border agents there. They were super fast, very nice to people in my experience, but uh, just just the, the staffing wasn't there. Uh, so again, it's a question of. If the airport knows what the throughput is, and, and if the airport sees some problems with, with um, say, tripling or, or quadrupling of the numbers of the processing times, was that information related to the airlines? And if it was, how come the airlines continue to sell tickets as if uh, the processing times were normal? Uh, the other question I have, uh, you know, uh, yesterday, a famous hockey player uh, had a rant on video about how horrible things were at the airport. And we've been talking about federal government employees or employees of CATSA, the federal government agency shortages there. But what about the airlines? So you have a story where a flight is canceled and there are literally hundreds of people who need to rebook and there are two Air Canada people there or other airline people, Monette. Uh, so how much of this is on the airlines? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to the challenges that uh, Air Canada was facing over the last couple of days. But what I can talk about is um, you know, when the system gets bottlenecked like this, it has a cascading effect. And I think people need to keep that in mind. Um, Pearson has noted that there was a ground service delay program put in place by NAV Canada over the last few days. And that's our nation's um, air navigation service provider, which means that flights had to be delayed and canceled. And when that happens and, and it keeps happening, then there's a cascading effect that happens in, in um, employees' time out. And then that you know, it, it sends that trickling through the system, um, which created a, a very challenging couple of days at Pearson. And um, it was really compounding a problem that already existed. And that's uh, what you, we've been seeing. Sorry, can you explain what that NAV Canada, what was it? NAV Canada, which is our nation's air navigation service provider, they put in a ground service delay program. Which is what? Which is what does that mean? <laughs> it, it means that airlines can only run so many flights. They have to cancel flights and they have to delay. They can only move so many people through the airspace. So they're restricting the amount of air service that can come into the airport. And and they did that because <clears throat> the airport was too crowded, presumably. No, they did that for their own staffing reasons. I'm not sure exactly what happened. I just know that they put in a ground service delay program. So you'd have to talk to NAV Canada about what happened over the last couple of days. Okay. Uh, Gabor, uh, what's your reaction to that? Presumably, uh, it would have happened after the airlines sold those tickets. Uh, well, that, that's, that's a big question of how much communication was there, because my understanding is that ADC air traffic control may also be short of staff, and that is, again, something that was known in advance. So really the, the key to these issues is how much of this information was communicated. And did airlines make inquiries about, hey, NAFCAN, will you be able to handle this many flights? Will you be able to handle uh, all these tickets that we are selling? The fact that I, I agree with on the cascading effect, but it, again, shows the lack of preparation of the airlines because these are known scenarios that can happen. You can't have mass cancellations for various reasons. It doesn't even have to be bottleneck. It can be also weather. But you still then have to deal with hundreds or thousands of passengers who need to be rebooked. And if the airline has only two poor agents, I feel really sorry for those Air Canada agents that at the front of the line have to deal with people who are getting angry after some point, and rightly angry. Uh, but it shows that the airline has not properly staffed its flight. It, the bottom line is that if you don't have enough staff, sell less tickets. 
you cannot, as any business, promise to the public to offer services and take their money in advance knowing full well that you don't have the necessary staffing. And if you do, then it is something entirely within your control and you will have to compensate passengers the same way as if you made a business decision because these are really business decisions. What the airlines have done, as I understand, is um, they had at least some of the information from the airport and from various bodies that, uh, that the capacity is not there, yet they sold the tickets. Okay, if, let's... If, if that's the case... The airlines are on the hook when these are all cancellations and delays within the airlines' control. Let's take a quick call from Anne in Toronto. Anne, you had a good experience? Yeah, on uh, May the 9th, I left for Florida. I was going to Tampa, so I went to Terminal 1. Uh, when I booked it, I booked on the uh, Air Canada app. Um, I was given lots of notification even before I arrived, That especially when that was just the week before was when the mess happened. Um, when everybody was lined up for so many hours, um, I was told what I had to have frequently, and I went on to, well, I can't remember that app. What's the app that I have? Arrive Canada? Arrive Can, yeah. I had, ahead of time, um, set up a profile. I had scanned my um, uh, my passport and my um, vaccinations, and then when I got uh, my... Uh, and your flights were on time? Yeah, but then I had also scanned once I had the results from my rapid test, you right. know, within 24 hours, I scanned that, and I got a notification from Air Canada to get there early. I got there early. When I got there, there were people, uh, Air Canada personnel, asking before I even really got there, okay. what flight are you taking? They took you to a separate room, and then they announced, Air Canada took uh, responsibility for this. By flight uh, time, you were you could leave that room and then go to security. And I watched people trying to get in that had later flights, and they were just turned back. Oh. So was it a long time? Yes. And even Air Canada was late leaving because there were 12 people that were still stuck, and they waited for them, and they uh, we were only half an hour late. They increased the flight. So I saw Air Canada step up, and everybody's saying, oh, it's this and that. Quite frankly, there's... Everything's siloed. They don't talk to each other. The airport runs. It has all of these airlines that pay fees to them, and the airport should be advised of well in advance of all of these changes. Blaming it on the airline, well, then you've got a lot of airlines to blame. They okay, well, I'm just trying to, uh, to, to sort Sorry. it out. I, I bet that there's a lot of blame to go around. And well, thanks is- for your call. And uh, I'm glad you had a reasonable experience and there was only a half hour delay. Um, it is time for us to take a break. So thank you so much, Monette Pasher and Dr. Gabor Lukash. And I'm sure we'll be checking back on this situation pretty soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Okay, as I said, we're taking a break and we're going to have a slightly different take on this from someone in the travel industry, two people, actually, Marty Firestone and a travel advisor, when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, one of the key pieces of advice that I've seen is make sure you have insurance before taking a trip. And if you're like me, at the beginning stages of just planning a trip, you may be finding that there is no room for anything when you want to go. So the numbers to call, are you having trouble getting away from that holiday that you need? Or uh, what about insurance? What about trying to figure out how you will deal with things if your plans get derailed because of the bottlenecks at the airport, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Martin Firestone, President of Travel Secure, and Paul Chin Aliong is a travel advisor with New Wave Travel. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. So, Martin, first of all, will travel insurance uh, 
cover losing your flight because of uh, stuff that's actually beyond your control? Yeah, great question. And I should mention that I am fresh off a plane last night from a two-week holiday in Europe. And I can tell you, Canada, if it's not proprietary to this problem, it is all over the place, including I, who missed flights, missed connections, had my bags lost and all those things. Quick oh, answer. Goody. Yeah, yeah. I came home from uh, Greece last night. I saw what happened in Pearson. I was kept on the plane. They let you off in groups of 50 every 30 minutes. It's a nightmare. But I experienced worse issues in Santorini and Tel Aviv and a few other places. So it's definitely something not just for Canada. It's all over the world. Okay, let, let, let me just get a fix on it. So how long did they keep you on the plane for? What happened is the minute it landed, they apologized that due to congestion in the airport, they would release people who have connecting flights to make and everyone else has to stay on the plane. And it's called metering, new word for me, that they would allow 50 people off every 30 minutes. We were a flight of 388 people on a Dreamliner, so you can do the math. Bottom line is you sat until you were able to be told you can leave. And then only to get into the terminal then to have your weight and the fun begin there for not only bags, but also going through customs also. Okay, don't make me do math while I'm on the air. How many hours were you stuck? Two hours, two hours. Two hours. Yeah. Wow. And just before we get to Paul, uh, and were you kept even longer in Tel Aviv and in Athens? So much so that we missed our flight then missed the connecting flight, of which was a different airline, so they don't worry about paying the mistake that the other airline made, and the bags went and didn't get on the next flight and weren't brought to us for two and a half days. So as you can see, frustration is mounting. Did you have a nice holiday? <laughs> we had the best time in the world, but I will tell you, I was cranky, I was frustrated, and I think I'm just one of millions of people of what they are going to experience and haven't even felt it yet, because this summer it's going to get even worse. Okay. And uh, uh, Paul, how is that affecting things? I mean, I'm I'm glad to hear this and I'm surprised it's Greece because, as I said, I've been trying to book a very special trip. I've just been told, forget about it for the summer. And they said, well, maybe you could go to Greece. But that doesn't sound like a good option either, Paul. How is it affecting travel agents like yourself just getting back on their feet? Yeah, well, I just had some very similar experience. I just came back two Fridays ago from um, Vienna, and I had exactly the same situation where they announced as we were approaching the terminal building that, you know, due to terminal congestion, we have to stay on board the aircraft and only connecting passengers are allowed to disembark. So we had to stay on board for at least an, an, an extra 30 minutes, and then Dealing with a terminal when you got inside was another issue again. You know, even though I have Nexus, that was not any help. And then when I got to the baggage area, we waited another 30 to 40 minutes for luggage to come through. So exactly the same experience. And it's not even the peak of, you know, summer travelers yet. And I came from Malta and Sicily via Vienna. And it's the same experiences in all the airports, to be honest. So, oh. and just yesterday, I had a client email me from uh, Copenhagen Airport. He was boarding his Air Canada flight to Toronto, and they were delayed for another three and a half hours due to shortage of staff, they were told. Hmm. That's another yeah. place I was thinking of, Copenhagen. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, have a- that's where he was coming from. Wow. So uh, do you, is that affecting, I mean, do you jump in to try to rebook people? Well, no, the flight wasn't canceled. It was still going to operate, but it's something beyond his control, beyond my control. And it's something that, you know, people are experiencing, not just in Canada or flights to Canada and from Canada, but from everywhere else due to shortage of staff or shortage of security staff. Um, I know COVID has a lot to do with it, but in terms of, um, I don't think that is causing most of the problems right now. I just think it's more shortage of staff, you know, besides having to check extra documentation before you can fly. That's just part of the situation because even when I was leaving Canada to go just to check in for the flight was at least a, a one hour lineup to get to the counter. 
Uh, Martin, we were just talking to Gabor Lukash from Air Passenger Rights, and he says the whole thing on whether the airline has to compensate you kind of turns on when they knew that these bottlenecks existed. So if people get travel insurance, and I'm assuming you had travel insurance, so are you out money or do you need to get compensated? What's what's the deal? So, so you know, again, I talk about this as, as a livelihood, but until it happens to you, <laughs> does it really become important? So sure enough, my bag. They are delayed for more than six hours. I call my office. They go, walk me through what I'm covered for for baggage. They confirm that if it's more than six-hour delay for baggage, you are entitled to $900 each for essentials and da 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 Well, I was thrilled to hear it. Even though I'm in the business and I sell it, I wasn't sure exactly the amount. And we just did that. We went out and got clothing and bathing suits. We were in a beautiful resort in Santorini with a pair of shorts on for two and a half days. Well, that, that needs to say can wreck your three-day trip there. So we did <laughs> what we had to do. And I will be reimbursed by the insurance because I bought trip interruption insurance that had a baggage element to it. But if I didn't, I'd be out the money and I don't know who I'd go after, whether it be LL, whether it be Sky Express or whoever. It's just oh, no. nobody, nobody takes responsibility from what I can see. And mm-hmm. and uh, have you tried to collect yet? I, I came back last night at, at eight thirty at night. Like I'm working on seven hour in advance time right now. So, so I have put in a claim, and I got the claim paperwork, and now I'm getting together all my receipts, and then proof that the bags were delayed more than six hours, and I will get it all back. I actually have what's no proof, issue in getting it, so that's wh- good. What's the, what constitutes proof that the bags were delayed? Oh, I've got a a. Um, uh, notification from you know that when you come into the airport and your bags aren't there, you go to make a claim of some sort. So I've got that documentation, and then I have the hotel who went and got my bags for me two and a half days later, wrote a letter that we picked these bags up on Saturday night, which was two and a half days later. So I think I'm covered with basically everything. Plus, you know what? My broker, me, <laughs> will be my advocate <laughs> here and make sure I get paid. Okay, well, so uh, people, if this happens to you, just so you know, get a note from uh, the hotel or, uh, I don't know, the cab driver, whoever picks up your bags eventually that they were delayed. This is very good information. Now, uh, Paul, what's your advice to people who maybe have booked, first of all, have lots of people, I'm assuming, book trips with you for this summer? When is p- the peak going to hit? What are you telling them? Well, the peak usually starts from middle, uh, second, third week of June. And people are so pumped up and ready to travel that, you know, they're just going to have to deal with this situation. And my only advice is, you know, do online check-in 24 hours before and get yourself to the airport three to four hours ahead of time. More like four hours these days. Hmm. Yeah, like I'm leaving this Sunday for the U.S., and even though it's just a short flight, I am actually going to the airport much longer than the the duration of the flight. So I'm planning to go four hours before. Four hours to go to the States? Yeah, because I can't afford to miss the flight. I'm going for a convention. (laughs) Uh, Four hours. I mean, do you expect... Just for peace of mind's sake and just to make sure that I get to that counter to get through security, you know. Do you expect people to cancel when they hear about this hassle? Um, no, I haven't experienced any of that as yet. I mean, people are, are concerned, people are frustrated because it's on the news every day, every night. Uh, but no, so far, luckily, I haven't had anyone cancel for that reason. People want to travel. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Paul, uh, as I said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to plan a trip and I'm told that everything is booked up. Is that your? It's so hard to get space, especially, you know, in places like Italy and Spain and Greece. I just came back from, from Sicily and Malta and I mean, it's busy and it's reflected in, you know, the service, you know, the service levels have gone down because, you you know, in restaurants, the wait staff is, is, they have a shortage of staff. The, the people are not speaking much English. It's just noticeable everywhere. And what about the price? I, mean, I gather everything all is... prices have all gone up. Everything, not just not just the airfares because of um, oil prices, but accommodations, anything involving 
gasoline, so transfers and chores, everything has gone up. By what, 20%? Um, probably at least 20%, yeah, or oh, definitely, yeah. Hmm. I mean, luckily, I have a lot of people who had rebooked from 2020 and 2021, and at the time when they rebooked, a lot of tour operators were kind enough to honor the rates from back then once they were willing to rebook for a particular date this year. So as a result, there's a shortage of availability of uh, accommodations for people who are now wanting to book because things are booked up from the last two years. And and when do you think those bottlenecks will clear? Oh, probably not till next year. Wow. Yeah. Marty, uh, what should people make sure this time around that they have in their travel insurance? Definitely trip cancellation in the event they get COVID prior to departure or I scary enough after a recent announcement today about monkeypox. You got to worry about that maybe being a possibility and trip interruption if you did get COVID or monkeypox while you're away, Canada is not welcoming you back in. You will be isolating there. So interruption is key to cover cost expenses and new airfare home. So those are the two elements and medical as always, because you can't go anywhere without it. But all three of those elements are now coming right to the spotlight because of the craziness that's going on with all. And one other comment I'll make, not only the cost of airfare and everything gone up, Food, my God, eating at these places now is becoming a very expensive ordeal from what I could see in my most recent trip. And you forgot okay. to mention the baggage insurance that, that's that's covering you for oh, 900 bucks. Is, yeah, baggage is included under the trip interruption portion of this particular product. So, yeah, Make you sure can it's buy there. baggage separately, too, but this was part of it, yeah. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much. I think uh, that really clarified things for us on a couple of fronts. Thank you, Martin Firestone and Paul Chin Aliong. Thank, thank you for you. having me. Thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, we are uh, going to do a big pivot now. And the City of Toronto has some fascinating new resources for seniors. Yesterday, the mayor launched the new Seniors Housing Corporation, which split 83 city-owned seniors' buildings from the Toronto Community Housing Corporation. The idea is to provide the 15,000 low- and moderate-income seniors who live there with support through an integrated service model. And it comes a day after he announced a pilot project at a city-owned nursing home to provide what is called emotion-centered care. And it's something we've heard a lot about but don't really see in practice. And I would like to welcome Mayor John Tory. Mayor Tory, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Libby, as always. Well, you know what? We are going to talk about these innovations for seniors, but I've just been spending the uh, previous time talking about the airport. And yesterday, you called out the airport and said that the situation there is unacceptable. Have you had any kind of indication that anything is being done about it? In a well, I talked way. to the Minister of Transportation yesterday, and I talked to the CEO of the airport on the weekend, and I think the answer is yes. Uh, the question is, uh, is there enough urgency being brought to the task of getting this fixed? Uh, because this has an impact on travelers who are just going on vacation, but equally importantly, it has a big impact on business, uh, people coming and going, doing business in Toronto, and it has an impact on the city's reputation. You know, if you arrive at an airport and you stand in some kind of an, uh, an incredible lineup or are left to sit on a plane for two hours, uh, you know, this is not a good impact that's created for Toronto. And, you know, Toronto's the economic engine of Canada. We're busy now. I've been busy myself and will continue to be as part of economic recovery, seeking new jobs and new investment for Toronto and hosting huge conferences like the Collision Conference that starts next week. 30 to 40,000 people coming to Toronto from around the world to talk tech. And so this is not good to have the airport not functioning this way. So I'm optimistic that they are on it, but I'm not so sure that they're doing it with the greatest urgency that is required. And so I'll keep on it. 
And and it's just they need to get uh, moving a little quicker. Is that uh, your solution? Yeah, I mean, what I'm told the problem is is a lack of people, and that you know that sort of illustrates an astounding sort of uh, you know lack of foresight in terms of the return of air travel. But having said all that, we are where we are, and so you know I have said to the ministry yesterday that I had heard and encouraged him to move people from other places where the airport isn't as busy. This is the biggest airport, one of the biggest airports in North America. It is the gateway to all of Canada. It is the gateway to the economic engine of Canada. So I would think it's wise for us to move people. They're training people, again, more quickly than they were planning to, to get them on board, performing security checks and so on. So I think we just have to get on with it and not say we're going to have a solution in the fall, but rather that we're going to have a solution like in a matter of days and weeks, not months. That's the urgency. It's just unacceptable to have the country's economic engine and the airport of that city, you know, just tied up in this kind of paralysis. Okay, well, let's let's hope and uh, keep at it because the situation is really bad. I agree. Now, uh, turning to the new uh, Seniors Housing Corporation, uh, I know this has been in the works for a while. It is just starting now. And uh, is the model, is, is it modeled on something that is happening elsewhere? Not really. You know, it's sort of modeled on what we used to do, and it's one of those things where you sometimes say to yourself, back to the future. Long before I was mayor, there was a separate kind of seniors housing division that looked after the housing we provide for seniors. As you mentioned, there's 83 buildings, 15,000 seniors call uh, Toronto Seniors Housing home, and this is housing owned and operated by the city. Uh, And then sort of years later, again, before I was mayor, they kind of put it all together with the other Toronto community housing units, and that didn't take account adequately uh, of the special needs needs that seniors have to be comfortable and dignified and be able to stay in the housing as long as they possibly can, as opposed to being in some kind of long-term care. And so we've separated those buildings out. And you imagine when you say it took time, it took time to separate them out just legally to do the paperwork. Uh, we've set up a modest corporate structure. It's not meant to replicate everything. And the whole idea behind it will be to work with other uh, partners, including the healthcare system in particular, to make sure that not just are we providing a home for those seniors, but that the home is one that takes into account the extra supports they need so that they can live longer, so that they can live a comfortable life uh, and, and, and remain independent for as long as possible. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that involves home care and everything. Yes. Uh, is it going to be modeled, for instance, on what a uh, retirement home, which would be expensive and high end, is well, going to be run uh, like you know, that? When you use the words expensive and high end, obviously, uh, you know, we have to be careful because these are homes that we own and they're not for profit and uh, so on. Uh, and, and a lot of the people that live in uh, Toronto Seniors Housing are people who actually are of modest means. And so uh, I will just tell you that what we're anxious to do is to establish uh, buildings for seniors that don't just have a home, uh, which is important, and that it's a home that's comfortable and well-kept, but also that we have supports available within those buildings so that people are not forced to go repeatedly to the emergency room so that they can be independent in their homes and get some counseling if they need it or other kinds of help that seniors uh, traditionally need. And so it's not trying to turn them into retirement residences. Those That's not what they are. Uh, but it is trying to say we're going to sort of try to enhance the support in these buildings so that uh, the people who are there can stay there and be healthy and be uh, in a comfortable existence. So it's, it's I guess, somewhere in between. So it would be something like having PSWs on site or having a doctor or nurse regularly visit. More the latter, like doctors, nurses, and service providers who may not be there, you know, 24 hours a day, but who will be regularly available in the building, uh, you know, so that uh, the seniors there, again, uh, feel supported, are supported, and, you know, can live as independent a life as possible within our housing buildings for as long as possible, as opposed to, you know, repeated visits to the emergency room or just not getting the help and then having their situation run down, their health and so on. So it's yes, it's some of those kinds of things that would be available within the buildings as part of sort of a wraparound supportive approach that has to be done, by the way, not just by the Seniors Housing Corporation or the city, but also in conjunction in particular with the provincial government and the healthcare system. Uh, yeah, I'm always leery when you're adding a, a sort of level of administration. You've got a C-level executive. Uh, you know, the province has been... Uh, transforming the health system to these health teams. LINs were supposed to be abolished. I've had uh, personal experience of that. They changed the name. Nothing else has changed. How do you make sure that that doesn't happen? 
Well, first of all, there's an ironclad, uh, you know, commitment not to replicate, uh, you know, sort of administrative structure. And so we've transferred some staff out of Toronto Community Housing, re- recognizing these 15,000 units are no longer their responsibility. Uh, and the I said very clearly, including in the introductory remarks yesterday, that, you know, we're not looking to set up a sort of separate administrative bureaucratic structure. We're looking to take people who are used to dealing with our seniors to provide those wraparound services, a lot of those done in conjunction with the provincial government and existing health care infrastructure, but not to set up some big structure to deal with this. So I'm very, very cognizant of that. And it is something that I'm committed to seeing us do, uh, taking advantage of the resources that do exist in the healthcare system and using those for the benefit of the seniors that we uh, have the responsibility of housing. And uh, when do you expect this to actually roll out? Well, it's, 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 it's in rolling out now. The announcement yesterday was really that it's in effect. The buildings have been transferred. The staff have been transferred. Uh, you know, they're, they're on the job now in these buildings with some things obviously still to be worked out. And in particular, the actual provision of the services across the board in all 83 buildings is still a work in progress. But the, the corporation exists now and the separate approach to wraparound supports for seniors in that housing exists today. Okay, well, I have to say, sounds like a good thing. Yep. Okay, and just before we go 10 seconds, you are reviewing Active TO. Yes. Well, we always said that we would, you know, be looking at this on a continuous basis. We get a lot of data. Fortunately, we now measure traffic everywhere all the time. We have electronic installations across the downtown, certainly. And so we're going to be looking at that, looking at the cycling volume, looking at uh, the attractions that are going on in the city. Because as the city gets back to normal, it's a different city than was the case two years ago. You now have the Blue Jays playing, you know, all the time. You have uh, Ontario Place with Cirque du Soleil. You have various places that are back in business again. And so it is necessary for us to receive a report, which we will receive next week, uh, and to uh, receive the advice of our professional public service with respect to what is uh, achieving that balance as between wanting to provide more opportunities for people to cycle and be outside and, you know, be in spaces they might not always be able to be in, such as the Lakeshore West, uh, but at the same time re- respecting the fact that people have to get around, attractions have to take place, uh, and so on. We're, we're still going to have an active TO presence in other places, but the Lakeshore West has been the one that's been a bit of a linchpin in terms of discussion, and we've got all kinds of data on that, and the report will uh, cover that and analyze it and make some recommendations as to what we should do going forward. Okay. Mayor John Tory, thanks so much. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're taking a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be talking to one of the conservative leadership hopefuls, Leslin Lewis. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The race for the leadership of the federal conservatives is entering a new phase. For the last few months, the candidates have focused on signing up new members who will be eligible to vote for them. Sign-ups closed at midnight last Friday, and now those candidates have to work on making sure that those people and hopefully other party members actually cast those ballots. Uh, we are talking to Leslyn Lewis now. She's a lawyer and the MP for Haldeman Norfolk. She holds socially conservative views. She is a woman of color and the only woman in the race. I'd like to welcome Dr. Leslyn Lewis. Hello. Hello. Thank, Thank you, you for, for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, your competitors over the weekend have been uh, referring and releasing numbers on the numbers of people they signed up. You know, 150,000, Patrick Brown, 311,000, Pierre Poilievre, and on it goes. Uh, would you like to share where you're at? Well, I can, I can say honestly that when politicians release numbers, you will always expect that they inflate it. And I just don't believe that's very genuine. And so I do not want to participate in that. I don't understand the need to do that because I I believe that we should just focus on doing the best job that we can. I can tell you that I've done remarkably better than what I did in the first leadership race uh, in 2020. So I'm very, very happy with my performance. But as to engaging in this, trying to outdo each other, I think I'll leave that for the voters and we will see when the numbers come out. But what I can say is for the numbers that Mr. Poliev and Mr. Brown put out, for them to be accurate, our membership would 
would probably have to be around close to 900,000 based on the existing numbers that we've had. And I don't think we're at those numbers. So I'm pretty confident in my ability to connect with the membership and I'm confident in my ability to bring out my supporters. Uh, You've said that you think you are the candidate to unite the party. You hold socially conservative views. Uh, You have a platform that is anti-abortion, and it's been said that you have uh, your anti-vaccine mandate. Um, How do you think that can unify the party? I don't know that I am anti-anything. I don't speak in terms of being anti. I speak in terms that can unify people. So I am pro-life, and the majority of my friends are pro-choice. And we have very intelligent conversations about what we most agree on, because most likely we're not going to change each other's mind. And fortunately, I have very intelligent friends, and we can have conversations about what we agree on and find policies that will unite the country. I think the problem is, is that the media and politicians, they, their job rests on dividing people and creating sensationalism. And so they put you in one box or the other box, and then they pit citizens against each other. I want to move away from that method of doing politics. I want to be a unifier and bring people together and realize that people can have difference of opinions and you can still form policies that are unifying and that are uplifting and that will put the country in a positive direction. Most conservative politicians say they would not touch the law if they're elected. They would not try to or change the lack of the abortion law. Excuse me, that they would not try to make it illegal. Is, Is that your position? Well, I don't have anything that makes anything illegal in my platform whatsoever. I'm, I hope that you did read my policies on life, and I'm focused on things like making sure that women are supported in their decisions. So something like a pregnancy care center, we have an eight-year waiting list for adoption. And if a woman chooses to have her baby, even if she doesn't want to raise that baby, I think it's a compassionate thing to do to have pregnancy care centers there to help her with that choice. And right now, those are at risk. And the majority of Canadians, both pro-life and pro-choice individuals, agree with my policy on this issue. So I haven't done, um, I don't have any policy on access. My policies are mainly based on what the majority of Canadians agree upon on life. And I think it's time that we started talking about these issues instead of demonizing each other. Hmm. Um, what do you say to people who say that in the Conservative Party, the socially conservative wing of it has a lot of power, but when that wing, when socially conservative people run the party, they can't win a general election. You just had the spectacle of Aaron O'Toole sort of running for the leadership to the right, pivoting to the center and uh, getting tossed out. Yeah, I think that that's not a valid assessment. I think that many people, they're so afraid of saying, okay, this is what I believe. And maybe the majority of Canadians don't believe this. So let's separate my belief from what a good policy is. And I think many people are so afraid of being labeled and demonized and this woke cancel culture narrative that has infested our nation has really crippled people from doing their jobs properly, including politicians. I believe the majority of Canadians are reasonable people who will adapt to reasonable policies and will welcome reasonable policies. So whether you're social conservative, a fiscal conservative, a progressive conservative, I believe that you will have to govern for the majority of Canadians and you will put, a good leader will put the right policies forward. So I think anybody, whether you're... hmm? Most Canadians are kind of in the centre and and would consider some of those policies to be uh, a little out there. Well, you you haven't asked me about any specific social conservative policies. You've just assumed because I have social conservative values 
that those are the only policies I would put forward. And I can tell you that as a person, I can fit into almost any category um, on different issues. It depends on what the issue is, really. And because I'm a social conservative, doesn't necessarily mean that everything I believe, I'm going to implement a policy on that. Another person may be leaning towards another direction, and that doesn't mean that they're going to think about themselves when they implement policies for the good of the nation. Uh, what about? So I want people to be able to be free to say, this is what I believe, um, and it may be separate from how I conduct myself at work as a lawyer, as a doctor. Uh, everybody has these beliefs, and we have to get away with, with get away from demonizing and labeling people. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and uh, this message, do you think it is uh, resonating? Well, I don't... I, I, would think so because I've had an immense success and I, as I told you that I've outsold the numbers that I've sold before and I think that many Canadians are tired of the division. Many Canadians want to have conversations on tough issues and want to come together and unite. Uh-huh. So you don't see uh, what is playing out as uh, the old kind of progressive conservative wing characterized by Jean Charest and uh, a, a different uh, further right Pierre Poilievre, you don't see that as being kind of the dichotomy at play here? Well, maybe it is for them, but I respect both of those individuals. I've had an opportunity to work with um, Mr. Poilievre, and I like him, and I respect um, Mr. Charest. I think he's made immense sacrifices for this nation that I'm respectful of. And I think both of them, both of their positions have a place within our nation. And our nation is made up of a microcosm of, of, of people within the society with divergent perspectives. And we all have to find a way to unite and to work together. And I think that we need to do that first in our party. So I welcome positions from both of them, and I, and I think that they're both respectful individuals. Okay. Dr. Leslin Lewis, thank you so much for being with us. Okay, thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.